This message first aired on the radio on January 7, 2004. We're studying in the book of Romans today, and we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've broken into three sections, and we're about to embark on the third section today. Now, those three sections are Romans chapters 1 through 8, which is a doctrinal treatise. That doctrinal treatise focuses on how it is that our salvation is on a principle of grace through faith and not on any other principle, especially not on the principle of law and works. And so we cleared that through the 8th chapter, and then we entered into another section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, wherein we discovered not the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has never been hid from anyone through all time, but we discovered in chapter 11, verse 25, this reference, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, of this mystery or secret. And we discover that in the Bible, there is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And for that we're grateful. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost, that is to say, who are enemies in their mind according to their wicked works. The gospel is not hidden, but here we have the word mystery or secret, and that is definitely about something hidden. In Romans 11, verse 25, the mystery that is let loose there or disclosed there is the mystery of Israel's temporary and partial blindness. Now, everybody likes a secret, but we only like secrets when we're in on them. Nobody likes to have a secret withheld from them. Here, if we read the Word of God, we will find that things that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world are revealed to us through the Scriptures. And that's why we have the Scriptures. That's why the purpose of our broadcast, BibleStudy.net, we want you to enjoy the Scriptures. I want you to enjoy the Scriptures. God wants you to enjoy His Word, the Bible. And we've been given the Bible for that purpose. I enjoy the Bible. That's part of the reason I do this radio broadcast or this internet broadcast, depending on how you're listening. Because I enjoy it and because it's been my experience over many years that most Christians do not enjoy the Scriptures. If they read the Bible at all, it's because they're supposed to, it's because they have to, but it's not about enjoyment. Well, God wants us to enjoy Himself, and He has created in us, we learned in the study of Romans, uh, especially chapter 8, but Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8, 5, 6, 7, and 8, we learned that God has given to us, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, a new nature, a new vehicle. And we have a new vehicle that is built to understand the Word of God. And then God has placed His Word on the outside of us to match up and to fuel that vehicle. So we are built to run on the Word of God. The Word of God wants us to get beyond the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly, uh, we begin with understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, again, I say, has never been hid in the whole history of mankind. The gospel of Jesus Christ has never been hidden. Adam and Eve knew it. Their evidence of it is Genesis 3, verse 15, after they sinned. Of course, there's no need for the good news of Jesus Christ apart from sin. Adam and Eve knew about it. Abraham knew about it. David knew about it. Moses, Daniel... In fact, 
everyone, Nebuchadnezzar, Ruth, Rahab the harlot, everyone who's ever been saved, who's ever been saved from the penalty of their sins, has known the gospel of Jesus Christ in some form of content. Now, it's very true that we have more content concerning it. We may say we know it more perfectly, the gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, God would have us to dwell upon and understand the secrets that he kept secret from all time. And so when we looked at Romans 9, 10, and 11 in our study, we found that Romans 9 and 10 was building us, and the first part of chapter 11 was building us up to understand that God wanted to disclose to us a secret concerning Israel. Now, it was never secret that there was an Israel. God did not keep it secret, but proclaimed throughout the whole known earth at the time of the Exodus that Israel was his firstborn, and he brought them out with a high hand, and the reputation of God's judgments against Pharaoh and Egypt reached all the way into the land that God was going to give the children of Israel, into the land of Canaan, called also the promised land, the land of promise that God promised to Israel. And the reputation of them and the fear and dread of them came upon all those people because it was quite well published that God had a firstborn national son, and this was the nation of Israel. So that's never been any secret. It's still not a secret that God has a nation of Israel. But the secret concerning Israel is its present state. Its present state. And what is the present state of Israel? Well, it's not that little country over there that's part of the United Nations. You can be sure that any time that Israel is numbered among the nations, as it is, for example, in the United Nations, you can be certain that that is not the Israel of God. So you may say, well, where is the Israel of God today if it's not that nation? And that secret is proclaimed in Romans chapter 11. So we came to that, and we understand that Israel is in a state of partial and temporary blindness, and that this is the plan of God so that the Israel of God today, the Israel of God today, is merely a remnant, which means the lesser part, and it's the remnant according to the election of grace, Romans 11, verse 5. And so we're happy with our broadcast, for example, BibleStudy.net. I believe, and we believe, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, but the one who believes out of Israel, the Jew who believes, Today, in this present age, the election of grace, or a remnant, as Romans 11.5 says, even so at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Well, do you want to know, my Jewish friend, if you're part of the remnant, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll discover that you are part of the Jewish remnant of this present age, and then as you study the scriptures, you'll find out that you're no longer a Jew just as I am no longer a Gentile, but we are both members of the body of Christ, the church, which is his body. Well, I, I say all that by way of introducing that we're going to a separate section in the scriptures, and that separate section is Romans chapter 12. Now, the apostle, having disclosed this mystery, but after pointing out that here's a secret, and you shouldn't be ignorant of it, so many Christians today are ignorant of that truth, and yet... He tells us in Romans 11.25 that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That temporary partial blindness has happened to Israel until 
the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Two words there. Blindness in part. It's partial. There is an election according to grace. Until. That means it ends. The fullness of the Gentiles become in. And then, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved after this period, after the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. And of course, our tendency is to be high-minded, and that's why we're going to be exhorted against that when we come to chapter 12. And yet the apostle, before he introduces now the section of Romans chapter 12 through 16, which is a hortatory or an exhortation section of the epistle, the apostle breaks out here at the end of Romans 11, he breaks out into a doxology. We learn a little something about the Apostle Paul. Some have said that the Apostle Paul was the most brilliant man of his day. I don't know how you can evaluate that, but that he was a brilliant man is beyond doubt. The book of Romans seems to disclose to us, though he's God's amanuensis, that is, that he is the pen in the hand of God, and we have the word, the very words of God, we see that the instrumentality he uses is sanctified by himself, including all the experiences of the instrumentality, for example, the Apostle Paul, and that he was created for the purpose. And so we see something of the instrument here. And in the book of Romans, we see the fullness of something of what has been known as the effulgence of the Apostle's mind, or the fact that he holds so many thoughts in his mind and he brings them out so quickly and in such an amount of detail that we spend hours and hours examining what we can read in a brief time. This effulgent mind of the apostle has laid out now a doctrinal treatise that is unarguable against by the rational mind. Anyone who is a reasonable person and reads the book of Romans will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see that salvation cannot be any other way. And then he comes to this great mystery, and apparently uh, seems to be overwhelmed by the fact that he has been given it. And so he breaks out into this doxology. Now that is to say these words of great praise or great weight toward God. He breaks out into this and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How untraceable, really, or, or let me put it this way, inscrutable or unsearchable are his judgments, and how untraceable are his ways to find out. That is to say, God's mind is so deep it cannot be plumbed, and God's ways are so complicated that we cannot trace them. And that means, of course, naturally we cannot. But how merciful God is to disclose these things to us. And that is the thought that causes the apostle to break out in such great praise of God. God is so deep, he's unfathomable. In fact, you cannot plumb his depths. You cannot really enter into his mind except that he discloses it. If you were to enter into his mind for one nanosecond, you would explode. You would come apart. We'd all come apart because God is the one who holds all things together. And so he breaks out in great praise at the great depth of God's knowledge and how unsearchable is his judgment, the way that he handles matters, and his ways untraceable. And then he says, and here he quotes the scripture, breaks out into the scripture, the Holy Spirit, of course, moving, for who has known the mind of the Lord? 
and who has been his counselor? And the answer to those questions is simple. Nobody has known the mind of the Lord. And nobody is his advisor. God doesn't need advice. Or who has been first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him. In other words, who's a lender to God? No one is. If God needed something, he would not tell you. If God lacked something, he wouldn't ask you for it. And I can tell you why he wouldn't ask you for it. You're so unreliable, I'm so unreliable. Why would he depend on us? Well, thank God he doesn't need to. So here now it says, as he transitions toward the 12th chapter, he says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And I'll just remind you of this one thing. God desires glory. God is interested in his own glory. If he wasn't interested in his own glory, if he was interested in anything else, he would not be God. And that's just the way it is, my friends. We need to accept God for who he is and therefore understand who we are. So the apostle has now broken off into praise of God. We see the great weightiness he gives to God. He understands who God is. Therefore, he understands who we are. And with that in mind, he now turns to exhort the Romans and to say in light of who God is and all what God has done, this is now the way that you should behave and he begins that as the epistle breaks into exhortation here, beginning with chapter 12 and verse 1. So here he says, now I beseech you, and now he's being more earnest, by the mercies of God, or God's compassion, because God cares for you, present your bodies, and of course this has to do with our confidence in doing so. Don't worry about God exploding you. He's merciful. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's your logical service. This is the thing that you will do if you are in your right mind. And the scriptures, by the way, do put us in our right mind. We have the mind of Christ. It says we are put in our right mind. One thing the book of Romans defines, it defines that we're in our wrong minds before we've received Christ as our Savior. This is not unique to the book of Romans. In Luke's uh, Gospel, where we see the prodigal son, one of the great evangelistic passages of all time. But we see that that younger son, after he left his father's house, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father's house. And, uh, of course, we've come to our senses, and we've become uh, rational, and we've become reasonable as created beings of God when we accept from him that which he intends for us, which is salvation in Christ. Uh, all the rest of the time, we're enemies in our mind by our wicked works. We're enemies of God, and we're actually insane. We're actually insane by every, by every proper use of that word. Well, here he says your logical service is to present yourself to God as his weapon, as a living sacrifice. So, in other words, we present ourselves as a sacrifice as the Lord Jesus Christ presented himself as a sacrifice, but we do not need to sacrifice ourselves in any way for sins. This is just the way that we should present ourselves with all submission. As the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father, uh, so should we. We're going to come back to more of this after this break. So as we consider now these exhortations that the Apostle gives us, which is a general statement, by the way, if we present ourselves 
If we present our bodies, we really leave nothing left. Some say, well, he says, present your bodies. Everything you do to serve God is in your body. And remember, there is the you that is doing the presentation. He doesn't say, I would, brethren, that your bodies present you. It says, I would, brethren, that you present your bodies. This you that is you is the new you. Now, I know that gets a little bit, uh, you know, we got to be careful. We're not looking in a mirror, in a mirror, in a mirror, in a mirror, in a mirror here. I don't want to get us all regressed and have you look in the mirror and say, look at yourself, look at yourself, looking at yourself. But let me just say that this you that he's talking about is the new you. The old you, that old man, he wouldn't pay attention to the scriptures here. He wouldn't be reading the scriptures here. He would not be responsive to this. And the apostle and any preacher, such as myself, I'm confident that if you're a child of God, if you've received Christ as your Savior, that this strikes a responsive chord in your new nature. Because that new nature is created for the Word of God. It is created exactly for the Word of God. Every person is created for the Word of God. Now, you might just put it the other way around because God has created all things. God has created His Word for us to be His Word to us. And so this now is the dynamite of God or the power of God unto salvation. And it is the power of God to live the Christian life. The Word of God, the book of Romans told us at the early, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God or the dunamis of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then we find in Colossians, in the way that you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and what way was that? By faith in God's Word. So walk ye in him, and so here, God has designed a new vehicle and given us a new nature. Marvel not that you must be born again, he told Nicodemus. Don't be surprised about that. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. And there's a new spiritual creation. Your human spirit is saved and a new nature given to you that is responsive to God, that can communicate to God and God to you. And that is the great miracle of the new birth. Other things that attended it in times past to give signs and wonders to a wicked generation that sought after it, those are unimportant matters, had nothing to do with spiritual quality. What has to do with spiritual quality, that God created a new nature in you that is responsive to the Word of God, and He created the Word of God and gave it to us, all of it, to run that new vehicle. What good does it do to have a brand-new Mercedes in your garage? In fact, if I had a brand-new Mercedes, it would hardly ever be in the garage. I'd be out driving it. But uh, I don't, and I don't want one, and don't give me one, and don't think about it. Don't, and, and if you want to buy one yourself, you would be so ha unhappy to have such a great vehicle as that and no fuel. And that is the problem of Romans 7. We have this great new vehicle. You know, we've got a two-car garage. That's every Christian is a two-car garage. And house in that garage is like a 1972 rusting-out Ford Pinto and a brand-new Mercedes. And the problem is that every day, or oftentimes, we walk into this garage and we drive out in the Pinto because the Mercedes is out of gas. Well, God has not only provided us with a new vehicle, he has provided us with the fuel for it, and that fuel is the Word of God. And, of course, it appeals to our reason. So our new nature is certainly not less reasonable than the old nature, but in fact is logical and reasonable and responsive to the Word of God. So the Apostle counts on it when he says, 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is your logical service, so just do that. And then further, be not conformed to this world. Now, this is interesting because here he's saying, be not conformed. And conformation, not confirmation, uh, but conformation is something that is done to you. Well, I guess, you know, in the religious sense, confirmation is also something done to you. Don't do that either. But don't have this done to you. Christianity does not feature having something done to you. you. You see, here it says, be not conformed to this world. This is the word suskematizo. Uh, it has to do uh, with an impression being imparted to something malleable. In fact, it's like stamping out a coin. And of course, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that one of the things that has transformed the world economically, and I studied that dismal science in college, I will admit I studied the dismal science of economics. And one of the things that uh, uh, trans has transformed the modern world is what we call the industrial process or the, uh, the so-called industrial revolution, which essentially was and is the mass making of things. And uh, one of the things that's happened today in our age is that the mass making, uh, that the mass making of things has become so good that we can mass make things individually for each person. We can mass make a custom thing, which, uh, by the way, is uh, amazing uh, and true. Uh, but here is this word, suskumatizo, and of all people, we should understand it, living in the post-industrial age, whereby tool and die are set up a malleable uh, substance, or we just put it this way, a plastic substance uh, undergoes uh, the impression that is pounded into it by the tool and die. Uh, by the die and the tool power. And, and that's exactly what the world does. It wants to stamp out little chunks of human beings. It wants to put its impression. It wants to put its pr impression on it. I'm reminded, for example, of when they tried to uh, trap the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in his words. And uh, the, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees came to him. And they wanted to trap him in his words. And they said to him, they, they said to him, uh, shall we pay uh, the temple tax? Shall we pay the temple tax? That's essentially their question. And, he, and, and, of course, the temple tax was a tribute tax. It was imposed on them by a foreign nation. So should we pay tribute? And we're going to get to that in Romans 13, about whether we should pay tribute, let alone taxes. But the, the temple tax, it, it wasn't just a, uh, uh, a tax, but it was tribute to a foreign country by people that weren't part of that country. And uh, what did the Lord say? He said, show me the coin of tribute. And they brought out a coin. Of course, it was something stamped out in, probably in silver or gold, something something suskumatizoed, something stamped out. And he said, well, whose image and superscription is this? And they said, well, it's Caesar. Well, he says, well, now give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. In other words, if this is stamped out by Caesar, give it to Caesar. But we leave off the remainder of what the Lord said. Give to God the things that are God's. And this, of course, now is following up on that advice. Give to God the things that are God. Don't be stamped out with Caesar's head on you. Don't be mass-produced and stamped out. But rather, yourselves uh, to God. And don't be conformed to this world, but rather 
Verse 2, Romans 12, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is the transformation that the Christian is to take place. And this word transformed, as uh, perhaps uh, many of you have heard, it's a wonderful word, this word transformed. This is metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. This is metamorphomai, is the, is the Greek word, and from which we get our word metamorphosis. And the difference between being stamped out is that all the, all the uh, stamping process takes a something and makes it very impressionable and malleable and then imp imposes from the outside its characteristics. Transformation is very different than that. Transformation starts out with a nature on the new side, on the inside, that cannot be seen. And it says, be you transformed. The nature of the, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. But we sure don't see anything. We don't see anything, and neither does anybody else. You go up to somebody and say, I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've been saved. I'm a new creation in Christ. They go, you don't look new to me. You're still your fat, gray old self from, from here. Now, uh, when, when I go up to somebody and say, I'm a child of God, they say, well, you don't look like it. I mean, you've got great hair and you dress well, but uh, you look like you're getting old. You look like you're dying. You look like you're fading away. Yes, I do, despite having great hair and great clothes. I still look like I'm a guy that is a passing fancy. And, uh, of course, uh, here... The, the new birth is on the inside, and it is, is therefore transformation. Boy, do we see, by the way, the inspiration of the Scripture, because when it comes to transformation, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, we really see that this is the inside working out. Now, that new nature will work out finally in the translation of the body, and the, or the resurrection of the body, which we learn in Romans chapter 8. We will be fashioned like after his glorious body. And the certainty of glorification of every believer is there. Don't you worry about it. But uh, it's going to happen. But in the meantime, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what is this? Our minds need to be renewed. And uh, this is something that has to be done again and again. That has to be done again and again. And that's also, by the way, the fuel of the Word of God. Just like you have a new vehicle when you get a new car, again and again, you've got to fill it with gas. Again and again. Because it will run to empty. And again and again, we need our minds renewed. Especially in the age that we live. As we see the Lord coming more and more, we should come together to get our minds renewed more and more often, that is what the Scripture says. So more and more, we should get our minds renewed. Do you know, my friends, it is possible to get into the state in the Christian life where you can no longer be renewed in your mind and it will be changed. You can harden, you can have the hardening of your mind, the hardening of your heart, so that you can no longer be reached. So if you can be reached today, and if your mind can be renewed by the Word of God, get your brains washed and get renewed uh, by the word of God. That's what he's saying, that you may know, that you may prove, not just know, but prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And of course, that's our great struggle. We don't know what God's will is. 
and we guess, and we do this, and we do that, and we get into the Pinto, and we drive all the old routes, we do anything, but have our minds renewed by the Word of God, and therefore we fail to find the works that we're to walk in, and be filled with his, the knowledge of His will. What is the great joy? Let me tell you what the great joy of the Christian life is. It's to first know His will, and then do it. There's great joy in that. There is not great joy in finding out later, oh, I guess I did God's will. You lose the enjoyment of the Christian life. And God wants you not only to enjoy your, his word, but the reason he wants you to enjoy his word is that you will enjoy this Christian life here below, even though it's the way of the cross, even though it's the way of suffering. God wants you to enjoy it in the sense that your joy is set before you and you have the great inward joy of knowing that you are doing God's will. Uh, it's better felt than taught, friends. I, I, can't, uh, I can't express the enjoyment of it. Actually, I can only teach about it. You need to know the enjoyment out of it uh, by actually experiencing it. Well, now the apostle goes on. So that's his summary statement. And uh, if we'll actually go about doing that, uh, then the rest of these exhortations will follow. But he gets more specific because he, he knows how we are. God knows how we are. He's writing this epistle through the apostle. And, of course, uh, in his experience as an apostle, older man in the faith, he, uh, the apostle also knows how we are. But here in, in uh, Romans 12, now verse 3, I say through the grace uh, given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And, of course, why are we exhorted not to think of ourselves more highly than we should? Now, I'll tell you exactly why. Because our entire tendency is to think of ourselves more highly than we should. That's why we're told not to do it. We wouldn't need to be told not to do it if that isn't the very thing that we do. But the Apostle says here, look, keep your mind sober. Now, having a sober mind is not having a bad or false opinion of yourself. Uh, it would not be prudent, for example, for Barry Bonds to come around and say, hey, listen, I have a hard time. I don't know if I can actually hit a home run. You know, I, I just think I can barely, you know, sometimes I, I just don't even know if I can get the ball out of the infield. And then he consistently smashes the ball 400 feet. We begin to say, you know, that's kind of a false humility. That's not proper thinking. But on the other hand, we need to be careful that we don't think too highly of ourselves. Now, I'll just leave off about Barry Bonds and say, how about you, brother, sister? How do you value and view yourself? I'm not worried about your about your self-image. That's a God's not worried about your self-image. After all, your self-image is nothing to be concerned about. You're created in Christ Jesus. You are a human being, and you're made in the likeness and the image of God. So uh, your self-image, who cares? Uh, but here, but uh, but here, we ought to think properly about ourselves or soberly about ourselves. We need to make sure our mind isn't running we, that we don't become high-minded. Because let me tell you what happens. You start out high-minded, you end up high-handed. And then we start seeing your sin, and you stink, and we all know it and you know it, and then we have those problems. So it starts out with a proper mind. Renew your mind with the Word of God. Think of yourself soberly. That is accurately. 
soberly, seriously. Uh, bring your mind to the place of sobriety and purpose, a sense of gravity, according as God has dealt every man the measure of faith. And above all else, here's what the scripture advises us, above all else, stay in the faith. We'll be back in a minute after this brief announcement. Won't you stay with us, and uh, then we'll have a little song. So we come back here now to Romans chapter 12, and we're in the fourth verse. Actually, we're in the middle of the third verse, and we've been exhorted to think ourselves properly. And I want to say that it says, as according as every man, God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And so the great judgment, really, of the Christian life, whether in all things, in fact, uh, we'll find later that the standard of judgment is whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. And it is an important aspect of self-control, and it is an important aspect of sober or proper thinking, uh, very important for us to think of ourselves inside our faith or to understand what faith allows for us and what faith does not allow. Faith interplays with our conscience to make it good, to make it bad, and you should be able to know enough about yourself to operate in faith. But it's not enough to just know an, about yourself to operate in faith. You must also be aware of the faith of others. And in fact, really, this exhortation has to do with thinking soberly or thinking properly or being, let's say, low-minded enough and reasonable enough to consider yourself in light of others and in light of your faith and their faith. Because in the middle of this verse we read, or excuse me, in the fourth verse we read, for as, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same, and here it says office. And that's an unhappy word in the King James Version. I think it has to do with the fact that clergymen did all the translating. Uh, this really has to do not with office or position, but it has to do with work or function. Not everyone has the same function. We are members of one body, and all members don't have the same function. Eyes, hands, ears, so forth have different functions. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll see him talk more plainly about this, that the eye doesn't boast against the hand, or whatever it is. But this has to do now with finding our place with one another, or ordering ourselves together with one another. And the viewpoint, of course, is the local church. And the scripture viewpoint is almost always the local church. Because, my friends, that is where you function. You function in the local church or you don't function as a Christian. And every Christian should be functioning in a local church and not in some ministry outside the local church or whatever. Here at BibleStudy.net, for example, this is a ministry of our local church, Millard Community Church. And the brothers and sisters in that church realize that this is a work that God wants me to do. They're, behind, they're with me in that. And others function in certain ways to make the broadcast and the website possible and so forth. But this working together in the scripture doesn't have to do with us being 
uh, members of the same universe one with another or members of the same world one with another or some kind of universal body of Christ of all ages since the apostles, though we have, I guess if we consider that, we have a place in it, but not a functional place, not one in which we can operate every day. The only functional place, the only people that you can order yourselves with in the Christian life is your local church. And of course, the enmity of Satan against the local church sees to it that we have organizations that don't even resemble what's in the scripture so that we can't really operate this way. That'll be a different message on a different day. But now he turns to gifts, having then gifts, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And now here the apostles talking about different gifts. Now, friends, we've all been given the same new nature. And here he's talking about gifts, and we'll have to make our distinction about what he is and is not talking about. Here he's talking about some gifts that do not operate today. That do not operate today. For example, he's going to talk in verse 6 here, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy according to the proportion of faith. Now, prophecy was a gift given to the Romans. Prophecy, knowledge, the speaking in foreign languages, these were gifts, and some other gifts, by the way. Miraculous healings. Some gifts were given to the church early on, before actually, by the way, the whole knowledge of the church, which is his body, was even delivered by the apostle. Before the scriptures were completed, certain sign gifts operated in order to achieve the mystery of the partial and temporary blindness of Israel. And these apparent gifts, these miraculous gifts, which we can call the sign gifts, were given uh, for two purposes. One, to signify uh, who it was that heard the Lord Jesus Christ and who followed him. And we learned that from Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll discuss this in some great detail uh, later on in our broadcasts, uh, not here in Romans chapter, uh, not here today. Uh, we may take it up more here in Romans 12. Depends on our feedback uh, that we get, by the way, through our website. If you have a lot of questions about the sign gifts, I'll just take off right here and start going into why I know for certain that those don't operate today. But here in the context of Romans, some do. So we have prophecy according to the proportion of faith. And you see that faith always ruled the ordering and the exercise and the functioning of the believer in the context of the local church. And that standard of faith still does rule the function of the believer and the, and the believer functions in the context of the local church. Verse 7, or ministry, on our ministering. See, so here, if we have gifts differing, then we focus our faith to rule our gift, or the grace of God as it shows out in us. So here is the prophetic gift of prophecy that was still subject to the proportion of faith. Ministry, or service. See, ministry is just service. Our serving or our ministering, our serving is to be inside the context of faith. We should not minister outside what faith allows. We shouldn't serve ourselves beyond faith. So that's the judgment. Is your service born out of faith? Or is it born out of some other fallen agenda? Now that's really the question. Is it born out of your ego? Is it born out of 
contention? Uh, is it born out of prohibiting someone else? What, what kind of things is it born out of? If it's born out of faith, then that is part of the will of God for you. Now we also see here in verse 7, on, or he that teaches on teaching. And I've seen many men, I've been one of these men, that teaches beyond faith, that begins to teach doubtful things, speculative things. You have to be careful about that. You have to teach the thing you know and leave off the thing you don't know or even say, I don't know. But it's not just a matter of teaching according to knowledge. It's teaching according to faith, not what you know, but what you believe. And, of course, one of the problems we have with the teachers today is that they teach that which they do not believe. Maybe they teach that which somebody else believes. But, in fact, teaching also needs to be ruled by faith. So does exhortation. And here's the apostle exhorting us uh, to exhort uh, in, in our exhortation uh, according to the proportion of faith. So all things are done according to the uh, proportion of faith. And he lays out some other things that are functions in the local church. Besides exhortation, he says, he that gives. Now here when he says, he that gives, he says, let him do it without guile. Let him do it without guile. That is to say, here, give without a personal agenda. Give without a personal agenda. Give with a transparent agenda. And, of course, uh, from the early time of the church, we saw giving with another agenda. Barnabas gave, sold his land, and gave the proceeds uh, without any agenda. Ananias and Sapphira sold their land, gave some of the proceeds saying that that was all of the proceeds with the agenda, apparently, of trying to be respected and attain to the level of appreciation that Barnabas had there in that church. So here, giving can be done with guile. A giving can be done in all kinds of wrong ways, which is why it is that people should not be pressured to do it, but should be doing it by faith alone. And uh, unhappily today in our churches, it is almost impossible to give anonymously. It is almost impossible to give without compulsion. It is almost impossible to give without guile because there are so many agendas clamoring for money. And just remember that if God needed money, he wouldn't tell us. He wouldn't tell us. So anybody that tells you, I need money, God needs money, God didn't tell him that because the God has declared if he needed anything, he wouldn't tell us. And the reason he wouldn't tell us is we're so uh, wretched and undependable. And uh, that's just not something God discloses to us. So we can count on that. He that rules with diligence. That is to say, he that presides over things, that he does it with a seriousness and a comprehension. Things should be well done in the context of the local church. In fact, other things can go poorly, but things should be done in the local church very, very well. And here this ruling, it doesn't have to do with dictating. It has to do with presiding over matters. Maybe in, your, maybe in the local church, somebody needs to rule over the way that the building is kept. Maybe somebody needs to preside over uh, the way that the people are properly cared for while there, whether it's their physical comforts or other special needs. Uh, this should be done with diligence or with a comprehensive 
and uh, with a mind of doing it excellently as unto the Lord. That's what this diligence is about. And he that shows mercy with cheerfulness or with hilarity. Uh, so, in fact, uh, the one who finds himself noticing that people have uh, certain needs of mercy, he should do this not grudgingly or not because I have to or not making them feel indebted, but he should do it hilariously, as the scripture says here. That's that word, hilarious. And uh, we could go on and we could dwell on this, and we like to dwell on this because it's about ourselves, but this is just an exhortation. I don't want to minimize it. But this is an exhortation to believers, I don't want to lose the main point, to first present themselves to God as a living sacrifice, to judge themselves in their function according to the proportion of faith, and to exercise that function in the context of a local church. Of a local church. And you know, in order to be in a local church, the church has to be local. So you can't join the church of BibleStudy.net unless you live in Omaha, Nebraska, and attend Millard Community Church. You can't do that. So God has a local church in your city, in your area. God has a local church within your commuting distance for you to function in, and you need to find out where that is and operate according to the proportion of faith. And by the way, that's not going to be an easy thing for you. The enemy is going to contest it. There's going to be a spiritual war around it. And it isn't like that there are many functional churches today. Most churches today are dysfunctional, and I am aware of that. Now, verse 9, love, let love be without dissimulation. That is to say, our love should not be pretended. I, you know, pretended love is worse than open hate. Uh, one of the things that's most offensive is pretended love. I, I, there are men, there are Christian men that I know that despise me, and they want to hug me. Or they want to say, oh, brother, we love you. And look, tell me you hate me. I can take that better than you actually hating me and pretending to love me. Uh, of course, all of, our, all of our affections should be open and honest. And, and here's the thing, as we're brothers together, even the sisters are brothers, so when, we're bro when, when we are having brotherly love, we can have our brotherly fights and get over it and have love that's not faked. The problem is that people fake like they love one another when they really don't, and the scripture dictates here in chapter 9, we are exhorted, do not fake your love. Don't do it. Don't fake it. In fact, go ahead and have your fight, bring in a referee, because here's the facts. You have the love of God shed abroad in your heart, as we learned earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our heart. That's part of the new nature. And all we have to do is let brotherly love continue. But we can't do that when we are faking it. So don't fake brotherly love. Don't fake it. And uh, abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And, of course, this is the exercise of sound judgment in all things. Abhorring that which is evil and hanging on to that which is good. Unfortunately today, my friends, the general dispositions of the churches of God is to let go the good things and to take up the bad things. These are things that we must do together. We must hold on to the good things and we must let go or abhor or despise 
or really hate the bad things. Well, there's a lot more exhortation here from the 10th verse to the 21st verse, and we're going to take them up, but we're just not going to take them up today. And so I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did, or even half as much as I did, this section of Romans. And uh, look for the next section tomorrow. May God bless you, and we'll leave you with this uh, wonderful hymn.